I'm going to give you a lovely Caribbean island for your own. And you're in charge of the energy mix on that island. What's your energy mix going to be? Probably I'm going to go for about 50% solar and a wind turbine and some batteries. And I might have a backup diesel generator with a tank of diesel for real emergency situations. To get you through October would be the problematic period. You obviously know more about the Caribbean than I do. I'm Angela Lamont, a technology broadcaster. I have been for decades. So when BP asked me to do a podcast on solar, I thought, well, is there anything new to say? Solar's been around so long. I've got this app on my phone called Electricity Map, and it gives you a breakdown of the whole electricity production and consumption for the UK. If you have a look at today, solar is less than three gigawatts at the moment, which is nothing when you compare it to the amount of electricity coming from gas or even nuclear today. When will solar really be a viable chunk of our electricity production? It's been around that long. What is new? Solar PV is the fastest growing power generation technology out there. Dan Walker heads up BP's Technology Futures Unit. Now, BP and solar aren't really two things that most people would link together. So where did this all come from? We believe that solar technology integrated with other technologies such as energy storage batteries and indeed integrated with gas have a major role to play in the energy sector into the future. So we're really trying to understand the leading technologies in the solar space and where BP wants to play through what business models. These are often areas where we don't have core competence or capabilities. So we are happy and keen to work with anyone out there who can help us understand these new areas. Over the past few weeks, I've had the pleasure of talking to experts from all over the solar industry. One thing they did agree on, solar's on the rise. Jenny Chase, I'm head of solar analysis at Bloomberg NEF. In 2008, the global market for solar was under 7 gigawatts. Last year, in 2018, there was about 107 gigawatts sold worldwide with solar now generating nearly 2% of the world's electricity supply. And there's no real signs of it slowing down. Chris Buckland, I'm Technical Director at Lightsource BP. There are still a lot of markets which haven't seen solar yet and haven't been able to see solar, possibly because of the longevity of the pricing. Sub-Saharan Africa, 650 million people with smartphones, with mobile money and no electricity. That has to be an opportunity which will come sooner rather than later. We are operating and trying to optimise these technology solutions across a total of 12 countries. We have a forecast, long-term forecast for solar PV. Bogdan Gadja, I work for BP Technology Futures and I lead the research in low carbon power and storage. We do our best and we try and take uh, feedback from across the market, but still we get it wrong almost every year. And in our latest update on the BP Energy Outlook, I think the adjustment from 2018 to 2019, uh, it's something like uh, 40-50% more installed capacity in 2040. So significant uh, adjustment in one year. So everyone's agreed that solar's on the rise and the technology is mature, it's proliferating. But you know what happens next? You take the technology, you refine it, you improve it. So which technology has the best potential and what's the most exciting? 
I'll tell you what my favorite technology is, and those are the uh, bifacial solar panels. New technology is being introduced in the market where the back of the solar panel can pick up some of the reflected light and generate a little bit of extra energy. And I've seen panels with white gravel or maybe white rooftops to help that light reflection and increase the yield. Just a couple of years ago, the main technology for making solar wafers for crystalline silicon switched from using a wire saw to a diamond wire saw. The wafers can be much thinner, so the switch to diamond wire saws actually cut a couple of cents per watt off the price of a module. In solar, there's different ways of capturing sunlight. David Lighton, I'm VP's head of technology. One of them is solar photovoltaics, but another one is concentrated solar thermal. And to be honest, I mean, that's what plants do as well. So you have photosynthesis today, but in the long term, you can have artificial photosynthesis things like artificial leaves, building a human-made tree which captures sunlight and makes storable energy out of it rather than the ones that nature grows today. So we look at all of those sorts of ideas. So we've heard about quite a few new technologies, but which one is the real contender? Well, I'm on my way now to Oxford to meet Chris Case at Oxford PV and see if he can shed a little light on the matter. Pun intended. This is a solar panel from about 1980. And these are silicon solar cells. It kind of looks ancient. It kind of looks they, like the kind of stuff I thought that they would probably take to the moon with them. A lot of people don't realize how far back you can trace solar. I mean, the first demonstrations for the conversion of sunlight into electricity was 1839 in Charles Fritt. A U.S. inventor put solar panels up on the top of a building in New York City around 1890. And we're basically still using that same solar PV technology today. Now the PV panel is made from silicon. It's not a bad material and it's a relatively inexpensive material, but it has limitations on efficiency. And the technology that Oxford PV is developing actually is a different kind of solar cell material. It's based on a material that's named or known as perovskite. It was discovered in the Ural Mountains in 1839. It was named after a Russian mineralogist, Lev Perovsky. We do look at perovskite, which is very interesting, thin film technology that could be used either in combination with or singly by itself, uh, silicon technologies. This looks like a conventional silicon solar cell, but it has a perovskite solar cell built as a very thin coating on top of the silicon. The magic is when you put the two solar cells together, the theoretical efficiency jumps from 29% of silicon by itself to 43%. Perovskite certainly could be a major disruptor. Perhaps in five to 10 years, it will be able to play more of a role. The perovskite that we use is not mined, it's not the mineral, it's a synthetic form of perovskite. This material is several hundred times more efficient absorbing sunlight than silicon. That means it can be used as a very thin layer. And that of course is good for the world because it only takes 35 kilograms of perovskite to make a megawatt of solar PV. It takes seven tons of silicon. Stop! 
With silicon perovskite tandem cell, something like 28-30% is currently the target for the perovskite developers. So that is a 50% gain on efficiency, which is absolutely massive. Although the numbers sound exciting, not everyone's convinced. I've seen a lot of thin film solar technologies go into early stage commercial production and pretty much all of them are by companies which are now bankrupt. It's actually much harder than you'd think to take a technology from the lab to commercial production because laying down a layer of semiconductor is technologically incredibly difficult. One of the key challenges for perovskite cells is their limited lifetime, which is currently only a couple of months, maybe a few years. And the lifetime issues of perovskites basically make it a non-starter at the moment for anyone who's financing projects. During our research, we have identified over 50 technology innovations, but we believe silicon will continue to dominate the solar PV sector for around the next 10 years. The sense was that with or without exciting new tech like perovskite, solar's growth is inevitable. We have all agreed with fast growth in the solar market. Uh, the question is whether that is fast enough for the global community to be put on path to hit the milestones agreed in the Paris Agreement back in 2015. Solar installations have doubled seven times since the year 2000. They would only have to double six more times to actually have 100% solar in another 15 years. But what's the goal here? What, what's the end game? Are we going for 100% solar? Because looking at my app, if I scroll over the energy production, because I can take it back and forwards 24 hours, yeah, yesterday was sunny, everything was looking good for solar at that point. But then overnight, the amount of solar, well, disappears. That doesn't take a genius. But also the wind drops too, the wind energy production. So what can you do about this massive problem? We, we can't pretend intermittency doesn't exist. I would say uh, challenge, maybe not problem. There could be an opportunity in this intermittency as well if uh, you are a power trader and your weather forecast algorithm is one hour better or more accurate than your competitors. When you mix your consumer behavior with solar forecast, wind forecast and all of the other things, it can get quite interesting. And I think solution is maybe to take a step-by-step -step caution approach and allow more and more of these renewables to come on the grid, learn, adapt. This is Sean Chu, Chairman, CEO and President of Canadian Solar Inc. I think there are two kinds of intermittency. One is the natural weather intermittency. Another is a political weather intermittency. And sometimes the unexpected change of policies create stop and goes for the industry. So we have to deal with both intermittencies. Solar has always outperformed our forecast, largely because there's always some other country that implements some kind of policy. And these days, it's not so much that it implements a policy to subsidize solar, so that they, a country will realize how cheap solar is and then say, oh, that'll look nice on our power grid. So in your opinions, which do you think are the countries that are displaying the most joined up thinking with regards to their energy policies? And how are they slotting solar into their energy mix and dealing with the intermittency? California's done an interesting thing. Electricity prices for 
nearly everybody change depending on what time of the day it is. And now, for most people, there's a time in the middle of the day when power is very cheap. And that encourages people to shift their demand for when there's loads of solar. In Ireland, where the grid code has been worked on with some very smart people and, and a lot of input from across the globe as to how to connect renewables without disturbing too much of the grid. And solar with batteries enables a much cheaper connection in Ireland because they're thinking ahead of the challenges that's going to come with 60% renewable on their grid. The solution for one part of the world is not necessarily the same as the solution for another part of the world less developed countries in terms of their power system in particular have an advantage because they can then invest in and design this system consistent with where the world's going. The overall cost of the transition uh, for those countries need not be as great as those countries that have got to basically start again with large components of their energy system and the capital stock that they've already built up. I can't help wondering if this app in my pocket isn't actually the solution to this. Uber wasn't formed by a load of taxi drivers and Airbnb wasn't formed by a hotel owner. Sometimes a problem can't be solved from within an industry. You need to look outside it. My name is Hariram Subramanian. I'm based in Germany, Nuremberg, working with Huawei Technologies in the PV Fusion Solar Solutions. We are into the electronic side, we are not into the panels. Our perspective is trying to bridge energy, power systems and telecommunication data analytics from different interdisciplinary fields into one stream to bring in the next generation Internet of Energy. The Internet of Energy is a new concept to many people. Could you just explain that? Let's say we are working in, in intermittent sources like PV, solar, etc., where we need energy to be provided when there is a peak demand. Looking into smart grids, looking from generation to transmission and also to distribution in a most energy efficient way. My name is Pierre Verlinden and I'm a consultant in photovoltaic technology. Uh, the innovation process is accelerating mostly because the industry is going so big and there's so much collaboration between the different companies that uh, we see a faster implementation of innovation. I've been in this for 40 years and I remember when I started my work on PV research, I thought it would boom within five years. It surprised me that it took so long, but it's so great to see the industry is moving so fast. Sometimes uh, it makes our head spin and we haven't seen the limit yet. I suppose when I started this podcast, I was wondering why we were doing a podcast on solar because hasn't solar been around for decades? But as it's so often in this industry, I've spent decades watching technologies come of age, waiting for them to come of age, getting quite frustrated about them not coming of age. And solar is just coming of age. You can watch things go up the Gartner hype curve forever until they mature at the top and then they either disappear without trace or they come mainstream, change our lives and then five years later, we take them completely for granted. So I hope you tune in to our next podcast about batteries. Meanwhile, I'm off to sort out my Caribbean island. Lots of solar, I think. Maybe PV roof tiles. That could be good.
This was a BB Technology Outlook production. Focus on Solar Podcast.